Welcome to From What If to What Next. It's a delight that you're able to join us. This is the podcast where we refuse to let the trauma, the despair, the madness of the world around us dim in any way our sense of possibility, our imagining, our belief that we could and must do a hell of a lot better and that remarkable change is possible. Here we dare to dream. We explore a different, delicious, more nourishing future that still remains possible, but we need to imagine it first. The intention is to cultivate in the listener, I hope, a deep longing for a different future. And today we have such an exciting conversation in store for you, I already have goosebumps just thinking about it. We're living in a time where the ability to live an imaginative life is not evenly distributed. If your basic needs aren't met, if you're anxious, stressed, traumatised, lonely, economically precarious, if you experience systemic racism and social exclusion, if you live in a colonised society that isn't designed to pay any attention to your imagination, then living an imaginative life is far more difficult. Adrienne Marie Brown wrote in her book Emergent Strategy, writing of the experience of people of colour, we are living in the ancestral imagination of others with their longing for safety and abundance, a longing that didn't include us. And so we live in a time that demands us to reimagine everything, yet creates the worst possible conditions in which to live lives rich in imagination. Hence our question, our big, bold, beautiful question. What if imagination were a universal right? I have two amazing guests with me to explore this. Ariana Conrad is a writer and activist who was born in the USA was raised by culturally German-American and who has been living in Berlin since 2011. After spending a decade directing communications for non-profit organisations in the USA, since 2008, Ariana has worked as an editorial consultant and collaborative author, calling herself a book doula. A doula, for those who don't know, is a type of midwife. Her clients, collaborators, partners tend to be defenders of human rights and defenders of Earth, writing visionary, solutions-focused, accessible, non-fiction books or memoirs. Books she's birthed include Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva, The Story of Stuff by Annie Leonard, The Green Collar Economy by Van Jones, The Age of Dignity by Ai Jen Poo, Free to Make by Dale Doherty, and Find Me Unafraid by Kennedy Odedi and Jessica Posner. She spends a lot of time walking in the woods with her dog Maisie, reading and daydreaming in her hammock. You can find out more about her at arianaconrad.com. And Dr. Masum Mumayo has worked at the intersection of arts, culture, social justice and human rights for more than 20 years as an educator, museum curator, writer and activist. Her life and work are informed by her identity as the daughter of Indian immigrants to the United States, a feminist, a person of colour and a person with a disability. She's currently a fellow at the Open Society Foundation and Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the founder of a consulting practice curating words, strategies and sites for justice and rights. Formerly, she was curator at the Smithsonian Institution and International Museum of Women and wrote weekly long-form pieces on global women's rights issues for the Association for Women's Rights and Development. 
She holds a master and a doctorate in human development from Harvard. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, she's been facilitating relief funding to artists, writers, museums and other cultural institutions from her home near Chicago and otherwise writing pages for a book on curating justice and a screenplay exploring colonisation and reparations through the textile trade in India during and after the British Empire. A lifelong vegetarian, she bakes and tries new plant-based recipes in her spare time and finds inspiration from walking amongst trees, something she has in common with Ariana, listening to Indian classical and Kawali music and listening to beautiful turns of phrases of black, brown and indigenous women writers. You're both very, very welcome. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you from across the large pond. A very large pond, indeed. Thank you. Uh, So we have a particular way that we like to start this podcast. And I'd like to invite you, if you might both close your eyes and get comfortable and invite you at home to do this too. And to imagine that we're traveling forwards through time, leaving 2020 behind and emerging blinking into a 2030 where everything that could possibly have been done was done. We're stepping out into a world that is low carbon, more diverse, fairer, more equal, more just, rich in biodiversity. It is a world where, thanks to focused and sustained activism and cultural shifts, imagination is now seen as being a human right. And that thinking now runs through everything. Education, politics, democracy, culture, everyone's everyday experience. I wonder if you might both give us a sense of how you imagine that world. Can you give us a sense of a day in the life in that world? Walk us through it. What does it sound like, smell like and taste like? Can you bring it alive in our imaginations? It smells like growing things. We've ripped up a lot of the concrete that used to cover the ground since there are hardly any private cars left. And so in all of that space, people are now growing food. The air and water are clean. You can hear laughter, not just the laughter of children, but the laughter of adults. Children are playing outside. Making projects outside is considered part of education now that we've realized how important the imagination is. Adults are also much more satisfied at their work because the workplace has changed in similar ways. Adults are only working uh, at their main gig half the week, which leaves the other half for elder care and child care and participation in local governance and in making art and making food. The fashion has changed. It's fallen out of fashion to be wearing uh, luxury items or displaying the newest shiny tech. Instead, the fashion is to wear clothes with that are obviously patched and where people have inventively repaired things. It's also totally fallen out of fashion to inject a paralyzing toxin into your face, uh, <laughs> especially into your third eye where we connect to higher consciousness, the source of our imagination. Instead, people's faces are beautifully you know lined full of full of the the marks of laughter and in a life well lived so after the murder of george floyd one thing led to another and ultimately police and prisons and the armed forces were massively defunded uh, they now constitute just 10% of their former selves and that money has gone into robust 
preventative health care and well-being programs that also contribute to a rich imagination. Everyone had to get training in nonviolent communication and facilitation and CPR so that they're able to diffuse crises uh, amongst themselves. It's also totally fallen out of fashion to be staring at one's screen while among the, in the presence of others while in public uh, or, or fondling one's screen. And instead, devices are, are politely tucked away in pockets or even left at home. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Masoom? I think if an imagination is a right, the two words that come to mind first are peace and safety. People can walk freely in their bodies and move freely in their bodies, regardless of their shape, their size, their abilities, their gender expressions, the color of their skin, their age. And there's an embrace of that, not just a tolerance of that. And all of the foundations that allow people to really partake in imagination as a human right are there. Many of the things that Ariana mentioned, including an environment in balance, local economies and ecosystems are nurtured. There's clean water and air, laughter, general health and well-being, connection among people, not so much loneliness, and an economy that really takes care of everyone and that leaves nobody behind. I think this world also has more art, including murals, sculptures, music, dancing, and poetry. And it's woven into everyday life, not just as a hobby or as an entertainment. Like Ariana, I also think that people spend much less time amongst screens. Work life isn't necessarily sitting behind a computer for many people. The primary means of communication is not just, you know, a mobile phone. Of, of both communication and, and of getting information, people are reconnected to people around them, to the environment, and at the same time drawing upon many other things, including connections to spiritual life, as well as connections to different forms of art as ways of getting information, but also gleaning inspiration in their day-to-day -day lives. Thank you both so much. Beautiful, beautiful. So the first question I wanted to ask you both is whether you agree with the premise of this show, namely that in 2020, imagination is not a universal right. And if you do, what do you feel are the factors that are contributing to that? I think we have many things that are stated as rights and have not been achieved in reality. And so I'm not sure anything is actually a right that we've actually achieved that by 2020. But in terms of imagination being a universal right, I think there are so many factors that prevent that widespread fundamental insecurity on so many levels, so many forms of injustice, an environment that's out of balance, pervasive violence. And because of all of these things, I think imagination is either a means of survival, of sort of being able to transmute ourselves from day-to-day -day reality and try to live in a space that has more well-being, more peace, more creativity, more laughter. Or imagination is impossible because people are struggling for survival on a fundamental level. And I think another factor is that on a practical level, 
in most societies, including here in the United States, culture, creativity, the arts, imagination are either poorly funded or not funded at all. There just aren't enough resources. And that, you know, starts at the very early level in many schools, but also permeates all the way to national coffers. One example in the United States, we don't have a ministry of culture. And so a lot of a lot of the support is private and, you know, relies on the market to value it. And I think we know that that neoliberalism and markets are not necessarily going to do that because they're not, quote unquote, productive unless they contribute to productivity in some way. So I think that there are barriers on a social, sociopolitical and economic level. Thank you. Uh, Ariana? Similar to Masoom, I think it's it's about what's protected as a human right. And unfortunately, even the ones that we've named already as universal human rights, like, you know, to have food and shelter or to be free from torture or slavery, we're, we're not doing a terribly good job at ensuring those. But of course, imagination hasn't even been named, I think, formally or enshrined. And so it's also, of course, not being protected in terms of why not, I think uh, imagination is a is a threat to um, the system of control and exploitation that w- is still uh, even in what we think of as no longer sort of colonial societies still at the root of many of the institutions and the systems that are in place. I worked on a book that came out in 2018 called Decolonizing Wealth where I supported the Native American leader, Edgar Villanueva, in writing it. And we called it the colonizer mindset to divide, to control, and exploit. And you see those three dynamics all across the board, to divide, to control, and exploit. You see it in how the great majority of our organizations, um, you know, our businesses, but also other kinds of organizations are designed, these pyramid structures in which the power of decision-making is consolidated at the top, among the leaders who then also claim the majority of the wealth with the bottom of the pyramid having very little to say about any of it and deriving much less of the wealth that's being created. That's classic divide, control, exploit design still today in place. And in the next book I worked on after that with community leader Zach Norris in Oakland, we described our our model of safety in the United States. Supposedly it's our model of public safety. It's been sold to us as that. But actually, it's a system of dehumanization. We broke it down into four parts, deprivation, suspicion, punishment, and isolation. Uh, And you see them enacted in institutions, not just, you know, in policing and in sentencing, but also in banking and housing. Again, really, that's underscoring the divide, a divide between an us and a them. Once again, we're back to that colonizer mindset, divide, control, exploit, And having people be imaginative threatens a system of control uh, and exploitation. The question, what if, is threatening. You know, if if slaves have any space to imagine, they'll imagine a way out. If, God forbid, school children get imaginative, they'll imagine something other than this, you know, (laughs) education system that is essentially training them to be cookie-cutter workers in an industrial economy still. That's why totalitarian regimes clamp down on artists you know, uh, historically always, it's because they're a threat to um, the order that's imposed. I think that many of the points Ariana made are evidenced in 
the rise of fascist regimes that we see around the world, including here in the United States, in terms of the ways that they're clamping down on people are so many ways. But I think one is really just trying to push a singular story of who we are or a singular narrative about what people's lives should be, what a nation should be, what society should be. And so I feel like what we're seeing now today is evidence of exactly how threatening imagination is and how threatening artists are. To me, like I think of that phrase, we can't breathe or I can't breathe really often. And it just echoes on so many levels. I feel like we can't breathe and we can't imagine are sometimes interchangeable in terms of thinking about this question of imagination as a universal right, because if one can't breathe, one cannot imagine. Mm, Wow, thank you. Um, And what do you see in the world around us now as manifestations of the fact that we haven't treated the imagination as a human right? What happens when we ignore uh, the imagination in the way that we have or, you know, systematically erode it, as you've just been describing? Ah, when we don't allow for imagination or only allow for you know an impoverished sort of imagination we we get stuck and we are stuck <laughs> even the solutions we generally tend to come up with to the multiple crises we're facing and i don't think i need to name them all everybody who's listening probably is familiar <laughs> But most of the solutions that we come up with, they still tend, I think, to reflect the same paradigm. I've been reading this wonderful book, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, by uh, a philosopher named Bayo Okomalafe. It's a book I cannot recommend highly enough. He says, in trying to climb out of the pits that we've dug for ourselves, the pit becomes resilient. In trying to escape the prison, the prison gains its form which you know reminds me of the famous Einstein quote, of course, that we can't solve problems from within the same kind of thinking or consciousness has created those problems. So that's where we're at with the limits to our imagination. Thank you. Masum? There is so much evidence that we're not treating imagination as a human right. I think on a very personal level, a lot of mental illness is connected to that in terms of anxiety, depression, loneliness, which I think is another pandemic that is global um, in so many ways. I think being disembodied, feeling detached from our bodies is another way, especially as more and more of life is about, as Ariana said, being workers in industrial capitalism, being productive, having to configure our lives really around that, which is, has been that way for decades, if not more than a century. And so just our day-to-day lives are circumscribed by that. And it's not very joyful as a result. I think also what I see in activist movements is that It's much easier to deconstruct and break things down and criticize than to offer alternatives. We see that everywhere from social media, right, where people post a tweet taking an argument down. I think our education systems have allowed us to become more and more fluent in different forms of criticism, which is important, but I think it's only half the picture. And I think what has suffered is the ability to sort of reimagine anew because we get stuck in this place of sort of 
really being able to name what doesn't work and why it's not working. But then the what if question or the what else questions, I think are the ones that are really hard to answer. And I, in so many sort of activist spaces, when, for example, like the World Social Forum, or there's a gathering around a specific issue, a large percentage of the conversation is really breaking things down and saying, these are all the things that are problematic, which again is not is not unimportant, but very little sort of time, energy, space are given to the what if. If we look at the way like a human being develops, it's inverted, right? Because children, as they play, they imagine and they have less social conditioning at that point, sort of less of those types of deconstructing frameworks and more of the what-if frameworks. And then as one goes through schooling and then one is trained to become a worker in whatever field, that is inverted, right? And we're trained to be able to speak in a certain kind of language or discourse to be able to produce in a certain kind of way. And so even activist circles have been colonized, right? In that way, it's all about being able to present things as talking points and be able to kind of show up and perform in a certain kind of way. And so I think that it's a type of colonization. I actually wanted to ask Ariana, because one of the things when I first met her that she was talking about in terms of writing and people putting work out into the world was this desire for solutions, that people are hungry for that. And I, you know, I don't know, that was two years ago, Ariana, when we had this conversation, but I'm wondering if you still think that's true and if that is related to this whole needing more of imagination. Yeah. I mean, obviously everything you just said resonates entirely. And I do, I I meant to thank you, Rob, not just for writing the book, which I have finished now, uh, and which I do think has the wonderful impact of making us all contemplate how much we're bringing imagination into our work and our life, uh, which is a wonderful outcome for a book, speaking as someone who professionally makes them. (laughs) Thank you. Also, this exercise that you lead people through at the beginning of the podcast to speak their vision of the the different world. And I, I have all of my clients, my authors do that if they haven't already done it. And and like you're saying, Masum, it's it's interesting how little of the time people who are working towards change will sit down and actually uh, articulate what does the world look like when we win? And in fact, that's been in a couple of books. We did that in the story of stuff and we did that in the um, the book about care, elder care, specifically I Jin Poo's book, where the outcome of of that exercise is in the book so that we're helping to make it so. I am certainly not interested in a book that is just breaking things down. I think we've had this, you know, love, long love affair <laughs> with deconstruction. We're terribly good at it on the left. We, you know, are eating each other alive. We desperately need to be constructing and visualizing. And solutions actually is a word that I'm starting to have a slightly more complicated relationship with, um, partially influenced by by this book by Okomalafe and some other folks. Um, I heard Nora Bateson. I don't know whether you know her work. I've, I've begun to think in a more nuanced way about solutions just in terms of you know, what I said before about them reflecting the same mindset. And it's really difficult to think about how, 
how we really get beyond that. Um, you know, Bio calls for trickster approaches. He has a lot of wonderful language around fugitive spaces and awkwardness and um, an unraveling and these sort of, you know, weird ways of talking about just kind of getting entirely liberated, which I'm currently super fascinated by. What, what can we learn, do you think, from the experience of the struggles of people of colour over many years in terms of how to keep the imagination alive under extraordinary levels of oppression and trauma? For example, the question of what if there were no prisons, which always feels to me like one of the most incredibly imaginative and far-reaching questions, one that opens up so much rich thinking has been kept alive for decades now. What insights can we learn from, from that experience, Masum? There's a couple of quotes that come to mind. One is from organizer Mariam Kaba on what it would look like to defund the police and abolish prisons. And she's like, we'd have a society that was built on cooperation instead of individualism and on mutual aid instead of self-preservation. And I also think about the quote from Cornel West, who says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. And I feel like every time I I hear that, I really just have to let that seep into me because I don't know what love looks like in public. You know, it is, is something that I think is still very foreign based on the prison system and the incarceration system that we have in the U.S. and worldwide. I think also just looking back at the work, the cultural work and cultural production of people of color throughout history, I think there's a number of things to learn. I think one is just to be reminded of and to revere sort of human strength, courage, determination, and the resiliency of spirit, which in a lot of cases has been broken many times and is still alive and is still fighting to imagine. So I think just to remember that, especially in the moments of darkness, like we are living today. I think another thing is to remember that imagination is both individual and collective, because so much of what neoliberalism has done, especially in the United States, is to make everything about the individual. And really, artists they are inspired by each other and they build work based on each other and many of them co-create the work that they do. So I think to be reminded that it, this is the work of all of us and it's the work of all of us together and that we hold this for each other. And I think the work of communities of color remind us that the alternatives are actually there and that they've been colonized, eviscerated, derogated over time but they've actually been there. I, you know, we have countless examples throughout history. I think one popular one is obviously the Harlem Renaissance and all that was produced during that time and the diversity of things that were produced during that time. And I think it's interesting, for example, like right now, at least in the United States, many people are going back to the work of writers, poets, musicians, artists that was created during that time to really be able to indulge their own imaginations on a day-to-day -day basis and find so many things, healing, solace, inspiration. I just think we're very lucky to have the history of the cultural production of communities of color and people who've been colonized around the world. I think that it is something that we will have the privilege to go back to over and over again as we figure out our way forward. Yes, I, I think we can learn everything about imagination from people who have been marginalized. We know that trauma limits the imagination on a physiological level. 
you get stuck in a sort of a frozen response, um, which limits your ability to sort of see options. Uh, what is his name? Besselfender. Kolk talks a lot about this. So uh, I'm I'm going to say something provocative. Are you are you ready, Rob? Go go. <laughs> I you know I I immediately think about how these days I only rarely read or watch films or TV or you know consume creativity that is made by or about uh, white men. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, predictable and mediocre. And I think that's because when you breeze through the world easily without challenges to your assertions, you don't get the chance to hone and sharpen your, your thinking and your imagination muscle. And the system rewards you anyway, because it was engineered to re- reward you, you know, no matter what. And I'm not saying that white men don't face adversity. Most do at some point. And in fact, I think it's interesting. I think there's a correlation. Often the time when someone comes up with something interesting, <laughs> whether it's a, you know, a business idea or, or whatever, a work of art, it usually comes out of encountering an obstacle or getting you know, hospitalized for a long stay or failing or having his heart broken or something. I mean, that's anecdotally. I, do, I don't have actual data on that, but that's sort of my observation. I need to be careful not to romanticize suffering, but I do believe there's a correlation between facing adversity and developing a strong imagination muscle or creativity muscle. You look at a place like Cuba and the ways in which people repurpose parts of stuff in order to meet their needs. It's, you know, it's mind blowing how creative they are. I was just amazed when I was there. And I feel like in our societies where all our needs are met in these consumer societies where we can buy anything and have it delivered the same day or the next day, we get really lazy and entitled. We forget how to make things ourselves and we forget how to make believe. Writer and activist Tony Cade Bambara once wrote one of my all-time favourite quotes that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why imagination, creativity in the arts are so central and vital to deep, sustained revolutionary change. Is such change even possible without them? I don't think revolutionary change is possible without artists. For me, artists, they help us imagine the alternatives, but I think equally importantly, they help us feel things in our beings and in our bones. And I think that's what makes something irresistible. Once you have felt that love that Cornell West's reference, it's very hard to want the alternative. But I also think it's until we feel that it's just easy to kind of stay in our heads and say, well, this is how it is, or this is too hard, or it's just going to take so much to kind of get to where we want. Helping us feel those things is the fuel that underscores transformation. Um, And I think it's not just helping us feel our pain and our struggle, but it's also helping us feel joy, love, pleasure. Who doesn't want more of those things? I think also on a socio-political level, artists help revolutions be not half-baked in the sense that Once something is dismantled, once a regime is toppled, then what? And if that question is not answered, there's a vacuum that gets filled by those that are ready to seize power or the narratives that are convenient, which tend to be really narrow and reductionist, or even sort of extreme factions, as we saw, for example, with the Arab Spring, there was 
such a wonderful energy in terms of people coming together in coalitions to topple regimes, but then because the what else or what instead or what if didn't lead, then sort of extremists came in to take that place, to fill that vacuum. So again, it's it's just the full range of what imagination and culture and art does that makes a revolution, impos- a true revolution, a, a lasting revolution, one that actually sticks and that is transformative at every level possible. Mm, thank you. Ariana? Yes. Yes to all of that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I always say to people when they come to the retreat where I help people develop books, which is how Masum and I met. It's a nonfiction book that we're working on, um, but you can't just fill it with studies or data in order to create any sort of change in people's mindsets and, and hearts. And absolutely what Masum said about the visceral reaction, the data doesn't do that. You can be as logical as you want, um, but in my work, until you're using stories, you can't achieve that that embodied sort of visceral level of reaction in people, which is what I think ultimately causes them to take action. I, I was so happy to see the Zapatistas mentioned briefly in your book, Rob, the resistance movement of the indigenous people in Chiapas, Mexico, for those who are too young to remember. <laughs> they were so creative. You know, they were their uprising was against um, the Mexican government wanting to exploit their land and their resources, and they called it their war against oblivion, against uh, corporate globalization and colonialism and neoliberalism and miserableism and all the isms. They were so masterful in using these uh, symbols and stories that take over the radio station and broadcast these communiques, and they had these these allegories with these really uh, memorable figures in them. And they sold the little dolls with the ski masks and they made such for such a tiny place. (laughs) They made a huge impact on generations of activists after that. One, one of the the truths that they were, they were working from is, you know, you, you can kill an individual leader or you can, you can kill individual leaders, but you cannot kill a potent symbol. What do you feel is the role of cultural institutions in this? What role can museums and other cultural centres and the official repositories of the imagination in our culture play uh, in nurturing this? Masum? I think they have a role to play, but I think more than ever, this moment is calling on them to do some internal work. I think first to decolonize themselves as institutions to confront their own racism and systemic oppression and to grapple with things like repatriation of artifacts and things that were taken as part of the projects of colonization, missionization, exploration. I think that most of the cultural institutions that we have today were born out of either projects of colonialism, projects of nationalism and nation building, or education sort of in a very narrow sense. And so these institutions that I think we look to as possible homes for imagination have to do much before I think they can actually be that. 
We have an interesting example here in the United States right now. The Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland recently decided to cancel an exhibition by Sean Leonardo, who is an artist who, among other things, creates drawings of police brutality against black and brown bodies. And they canceled the show without consulting him, citing that they weren't sure that they would be able to handle the backlash, the controversy, the community rage and conversations that would likely result from the exhibition, especially during this time. That's just one of many examples of how these institutions are not serving as models for the type of imagination, decolonization, cultural engagement, and community engagement that we need. That being said, I think that there are examples of museums such as, for example, the National Museum of African American Culture and History that is open just a few years ago as part of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., that are very different models of museums that are born from community engagement that have their roots in thinking very differently about what the role of a museum in society can be and that also manifest themselves very differently in terms of how and where they put on exhibitions and public programs, how they think about collections, how they work with artists. So I think that there is a huge role to play, but personally, I think that this is a moment to reflect and to clean house for most cultural institutions. And I think that both those who work inside them, especially in the United States, again, museum workers of color, but also those communities that engage with them are asking for that in this moment. And I think not responding to those things will have dire consequences for the future of cultural institutions and society at large. No longer can these kinds of questions about slavery, empire, colonization, extraction of land, exploitation of people, which museums have been a part of throughout history, no longer can those questions be swept under the rug. So one of the ideas that I play around with in From What Is to What If is the idea of a National Imagination Act, the idea that we could create a national piece of legislation designed to uphold everybody's right to an imaginative life. Do you think something like this might work? Might that we might be able to find a way of intentionally prioritizing the conditions for the imagination on a societal scale? Okay, so you're asking me if I were empress of the earth, as I often <laughs> suggest that I should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I would probably focus on other. Uh, contextual things as opposed to designing an, a National Imagination Act itself. I, I really believe that a major impediment to our imagination is our consumer culture where we're inundated with easy, shiny, distracting things and we're all numbed out and uh, deprived of our agency. And so it's like, how? what are the, what are the drivers um, of changing that? <laughs> It's a very difficult one, actually, <laughs> to work on. <laughs> that one, I think, uh, happens with culture change. Um, you know, working to make a different kind of life seem desirable or maybe a total breakdown. Um, and I know you've had an entire podcast. I enjoyed it, devoted to the impact that a universal basic income could make. And I do think that if people had to work less in, in order to make ends meet, it's probable that they'll, they'll get more creative 
And, you know, we could mandate things like meditation in schools and workplaces that the day starts off with 15 minutes of silent meditation for everyone. I think those kinds of things would, for me, be the the engines um, as opposed to an outright National Imagination Act. Yeah, I agree with a lot of things Ariana said. I think I'm very leery in this moment of having government be a driver or a piece of legislation be a driver of that. I think what we've seen is just a lot of lip service that doesn't translate into political will, that doesn't translate into allocation of resources. And I think that this is largely, as Ariana mentioned, about cultural change and sort of shifts in day-to-day life. And so I think that's where I would focus my energies as well. I think that Anytime something becomes bureaucratized, it often also becomes diluted. And we want the opposite of that. In this case, I think we want it to seep into the cracks and crevices of how we structure our days. And so I think there's other types of intervention that may be more useful for that. I really do wonder in this moment, you know, as we live through this pandemic and as we reckon with racism and many other forms of oppression, if there is an opportunity to really bring back, not to bring back, but maybe to for to have people reconnect to the kinds of things that will help us not just survive, but thrive beyond this, just because so many things are different and so many things that we took for granted have changed. And we're going to be in this period for a while longer. And so I think that there is a moment here to be able to reimagine a lot of things because simply because many things that we took for granted are not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. And how do you both in your own lives protect and nurture your own imagination, create the best conditions to live the most imaginative lives you can? I feel like imagination is related to time and space. And so I've really been thinking about kind of my own internalized oppression around productivity and the sort of need to be productive all the time and have been more intentional in carving out time and space that isn't scheduled where there isn't a to-do list that has to be taken care of. And I realize how much of a privilege that is. And so I think just having gratitude for that for me is really important because I know that for many people life is about survival and they don't have a lot of choices around that and so creating and being grateful for time and space to be able to just have something that is unoccupied and to explore then what emerges. As you mentioned in both of our bios, Ariana and I mentioned walking and being amongst nature. I think for me, that's another way to cultivate imagination. I feel like nature itself is just full of inspiration in that way. And to see that across the changing seasons, I think is important because it reminds me that there are cycles and that I think imagination is part of that cycle and also has cycles of its own. I think also obviously engaging with art in different forms in every single form from so many different artists, including those whose life experiences are very different from my own, is definitely a way I nurture my imagination. And then something which isn't part of my day-to-day life because I don't have children and also because of Uh, social distancing and physical distancing during the pandemic. Uh, But playing with children, I think, is also a really beautiful way to nurture imagination because they 
they embody that and they are role models for us in that way. Thank you. Ariana? I should also start with the fact that I am incredibly privileged. Um, I got dealt a really high hand of cards in life. Um, but I have also made a conscious effort to create a life that enables a lot of reflection. You know, ten, ten, 10 years ago, I moved to a place with a much lower cost of living than where I had been living previously, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area and in Brooklyn, New York. Ever since that, I haven't had quite that level of anxiety hanging over me, you know, the demand to make some huge rent every month. And then in terms of sort of a specific practice uh, for the last at least 12, I think, years or so, I've uh, started most days by doing the morning pages, that, that practice of sort of clearing a, a written meditation that Julia Cameron recommends for creative people in her book, The Artist's Way. I joke that I live a little like a monk. I also am child-free, um, <laughs> currently single. Like Masoom said, you know, it's t time and space. I'm a big believer in silence. So I don't have background music or the radio going for most of the day. If I put on some music, it's because I'm going to you know, dance to it, move to it, stretch to it, or, or listen to it. Yes, definitely the walking, the walking in the woods, which is an almost daily practice. And, you know, while I'm out there, I don't touch my phone at all. Um, may, or maybe one in 10 times that, you know, I take a picture or something, but I will not have phone conversations or be checking on things. I, it's really my time to just be connected to my body and to the woods. And, um, you know, I do, I do think through some of the things I'm working on. Um, and then finally, I'd say that my, you know, my favorite sort of chill out activity is, um, is reading science fiction and fantasy. So very imaginative forms. <laughs> Currently, I'm totally in love with Nady Okorafor, I think is how you pronounce her name, and Nora K. Jemison, who goes by N.K. Jemison, and of course, Octavia Butler, all three of them amazing women of color, fantasy and sci-fi writers. Highly, highly recommended. Wonderful. This has been, I feel like we could just talk for hours and hours and uh, it would get deeper and richer and richer. Uh, but I wondered if there's anything that you'd still like to share, any reflections in relation to our question of what if imagination were human right that I haven't yet asked you the question for yet? I had a thought, you know, which was sparked when I read your book, Rob. There's that quote from Ursula Le Guin, where she says she had abandoned the word creativity because corporations had co-opted it. Mm -hmm. Only blessings towards her spirit. Hopefully she's listening in on this conversation. I bet she'd like it. Um, but I think rather than sort of, you know, take a um, stance of demonizing corporations that have recognized the value in things like creativity and innovation... I mean, I have to say I'm totally irritated by this word ideation, but um, <laughs> but rather than, you know, hate on them, we could look at what happened um, when they've prioritized it. And I think Google famously gave its or gives still its employees one day per week where where they get to work on whatever creative project they like. And of course, they do it with the bottom line in mind because all sorts of cool Google products have come out of that process. But but we can tip our hat to them and then apply the same practice, not for the sake of the bottom line, but, you know, for the good of all of us and for all of us thriving. You know, what if, what if all our workplaces gave our employees the same freedom? 
Wonderful. Thank you so both so, so much for coming on. This has been just delightful. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Really love the premise of the podcast and any minutes with Ariana are a privilege as far as I'm concerned. So it's been a pleasure. Ah, the feeling is totally mutual. Thank you. My thanks to everybody also for listening and to Ben Adicott for production and theme music and see you next time.